Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. This week, I am joined by John Hutchinson. John is the Director of Training and Development at the REACH Foundation and is also a visiting fellow at Ambition Institute for their Masters in Expert Teaching. John has spoken at several Research Ed events and has written an excellent chapter on instructional coaching for the Research Ed Guide to Leadership. I'd highly recommend you buying that and reading it. John also blogs at www.pedfed.wordpress.com and in there there are some wonderful posts that would really challenge your thinking. I was interested in speaking to John after listening to him on the Teachers Talk radio show with Emily Fowler-Runshow. And in that show they explored John's five best bets for teaching and learning. And I thought that would be a great episode of Becoming Educated. And delightfully, John agreed to come on the show. So I asked John to dive deep into his thinking around those five best bets for teaching and learning. And those five best bets are low-stakes quizzing, instructional coaching, sequencing curriculum, improving ratio, and learning about cognitive load theory. And throughout the episode, John dives into the research, shares examples, and we really get a look into his thinking around these five best bets for learning. I can't wait to share this with you. So without further ado, let's drive right in to my conversation with John Hutchinson. John Hutchinson, thank you so much for joining me today on the Becoming Educated podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm in fine fettle. How are you? I'm very, very good. I'm really excited to get into our our conversation today. But before we do that, what I usually do with my guests is ask them to give us a brief synopsis of of them and their career to date. So could you provide us with that, please? Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, So I'm John Hutchinson, um, and I'm currently Director of Training and Development for the REACH Foundation, um, which is a, uh, um, it's a, it's a charity that's uh, attached to our school, the REACH Academy Feltham. Um, so I started teaching in 2013. I'm a primary teacher um, and I uh, started out in the school in Enfield in northeast London um, and um, t- taught there for a couple of years. And, and while I was there, I heard uh, a guy called uh, Ed Van Kerr speak at a conference and he talks about this school that he'd set up in 2012 um, and that the, the aim of this school was to... Um, provide for for all of the pupils lives of, of choice and opportunity in a particularly challenging area in in London and I was just like blown away by um, his his vision his commitment his enthusiasm um, and, but also the, the the sort of drive to be to be innovative to to um, uh, take approaches that that only that, that we felt only had a positive impact on young people's lives um that was sort of exciting for me as well as also i think the school wasn't full at that point and so it's kind of exciting for me i was still quite early in my career um it's quite ex- exciting um 
uh, prospect to be able to join a, a school that was still sort of being built. So I joined Reach in 2014 uh, as a year two teacher. Um, and um, over the next um, over the next five or six years, taught across in different in different year groups. So I've been lucky enough to try to, to, to teach most year groups in, in, in primary now. Um, and also had the chance to teach an A level because we're because we're all through. So the school has children from two to to eighteen. So um, we do we do that a bit. We have a couple of our um, uh, primary teachers who, who use their degree specialism to, to to maybe teach usually in the A level because of because of timetabling as much as anything. Um, so we have uh, sometimes um, uh, our year four teacher will pop upstairs in uh, in the afternoon teach a psychology A level, or our year three teacher will teach a music A level, um, and uh, so that was a cool opportunity as well. And also, I think helpful in terms of getting a sense of the of the all throughness. Um, uh, I while I was with Reach, I also um, so I did a couple of other bits on the on, on the side. Um, I uh, I went and got a master's in in education um, because I was very interested in educational research, and I think like lots of people, um, quite shocked when I sort of entered teaching into how much of it was done just on kind of whim or we we've just sort of always done it this way. I'd sort of expected, given that formal education is you know about 100 years old maybe longer if, if we're not talking about universal education quite shocked that, that it still really seemed like there wasn't um well anything like a consensus on effective instruction um so i did a master's uh, over over a couple of years because i was still teaching uh, um i was teaching full-time and doing the master's uh, um part-time um and um uh really got the bug of sort of educational research and applying um what we know about effective instruction and curriculum design and assessment to to teaching um that then led to me also getting us a comment to ambition institute and so uh, um, really lucky um ed uh, uh let me have a day a week to be seconded to ambition institute so since 20 2018 i think um i um, spend a day a week tutoring on their masters in expert teaching um, in which we try to take um, so that's designed uh, um, especially for um, uh, classroom teachers and there are six modules on things like um, um, consolidating knowledge um, assessment design um, uh, sequencing knowledge in terms of curriculum motivation how to motivate pupils and over so there's six of those modules and, and what what we do is we work Quite intensively with those teachers throughout the module to um, help them to, to translate and apply that to their to their classrooms. Uh, so they come up with a, a kind of a practice based approach, uh, what we call a move, a change in their practice, an evidence based change in their practice based on the research that they've that they've been reading. I absolutely love that that day because I get to spend three or four hours having conversations with teachers secondary primary early years and the what they're making in this research the way that they're applying it first of all it's just i just think teachers are awesome <laughs> these teachers are doing really really cool stuff in their classroom and it also means i get to sort of keep keeps me up to date with the the latest sort of like research and thinking on education so I did that um, as part of that. I think I think because of that, I got invited onto the ECF group um, and was was one of the um, members of the core group that wrote the ECF, which has obviously just been rolled out. Um, it's, it feels weird because that was years ago that we worked on that. I think we worked on it from 2017 to 20, 
2018, maybe 2019. And then there was, you know, there was a, a, a that they were committed to making it work by, by piloting it. There was, there was a pandemic. And so it's obviously right on sort of like the front of everybody's minds at the moment. Um, but I'm kind of trying to rack my brains in terms of what we, <laughs> what, what we were working on when we did it. Um, and then in uh, Easter, um, so Easter 2021 last year, uh, I uh, moved out of the classroom, uh, which was a bit a bit terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, so uh, my wife and I had a baby, and um, I was commuting an hour and a half each way into school, um, and did that. For, so I did about six months, and um, I, by the time you know, I was I was leaving for work before before Billy, my my little girl, was was awake, and I was getting back up, and she was already in bed. And I thought I I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a weekend yeah, dad. Um, and and so um, so yeah, I made the difficult decision to say, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna we're gonna move out of London. Um, we're we're going to um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do something else. Luckily, Ed at that time said. We might have a job for you. <laughs> um, uh, so the foundation was 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 just sort of starting to kick off in terms of um, us actually having um, a group of people who are thinking about codifying what we believed about great education, some of what we've done at, at, at Reach. And that's kind of predicated on two ideas. Um, uh, one is that um, uh, a great school is, is necessary uh, for pupils to flourish, for pupils to have... Um, lives of choice and opportunity but the second is that it's not sufficient um we we don't think that if you just get all of your kids an amazing set of gcses and a levels then job done everything's fine um we think that to serve your community properly in terms of giving making sure that everybody has equal opportunities and, and, and chances um it needs to be broader than that. So, so we talk about um, being healthy. Uh, in fact, a lot of the old Every Child Matters stuff, if you mm-hmm. remember the Every Child Matters, the, the beams they used to be called. So um, uh, having having a strong network of people around you, building a strong network of, of, of people around you, um, being, being healthy, being able to be financially stable. Um, now, I want to stress, we think, think that an excellent education is absolutely critical here what we're not saying is school doesn't matter it's all of the other stuff but we we got really really good results we got some of the best results in the country for for GCSE and in our first set and have maintained um, extremely high sort of GCSE results and we think as I say that that's really important but our reflection was that for many of our pupils, and especially those pupils who um, uh, came in with the, the, the largest amounts of sort of disadvantage and deprivation by different sort of indicators, it, it sort of wasn't enough just being academically successful. There's a bunch of other stuff that was really important. And there are other reports like um, uh, the um, uh, L- LCKMO report on white British boys, for example, of just just getting great GCSEs isn't enough mm-hmm. for for those um, for those for that group. It is an educational attainment problem but it's not just an educational attainment problem um and so we have tried to and the second thing is trying to we want to try and change the narrative of like the goal i think you sometimes see this narrative that the goal is that you um you get the kids out of the community that's like that's the goal that you have these kids they live in a deprived community, uh, 
that's the problem. So you get them great GCSEs and A levels, so they can go to Cambridge and they can live in they can live in Oxford or they can live in uh, Surrey. Like that's not the goal for us <laughs> because that. The, the community isn't the problem. The lack of investment and opportunity within the community mm. is the problem. Like, why do why do people like living in these leafy areas? Because they have, you know, they have great arts and provision and cafes and uh, culture, um, and uh, there's low crime because everybody's already affluent. So, rather than saying, "Well, move to one of those areas," why not make the community that sort of a place? And you don't make a community that sort of place by getting everybody out of it if they can at all make it so we wanted to really see ourselves as as um as the school as a as a service to the community and a part of the community as opposed to we're trying to save people from this community um so that means uh doing uh, quite a lot of um listening to the community so understanding what makes life difficult for people within the community um supporting people within the community to lead campaigns to have things change and that doesn't mean us doing it it means that there's plenty of people within that community like we found there's plenty of people in that community perfectly capable of doing that sort of work like we want to really avoid the kind of savior sort of thing um and 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 also pursuing what we call a cradle to career approach which is beginning much much earlier so our one of the things that we've learned is age four or five is about four or five years too late to be working with many families that that, that most need support um the earlier you can intervene really the, the better the really you save yourself so much um, um difficulty later on but if you can get uh, intervene as early as possible um and so we have a hub which has an amazing team who do work with the whole community in terms of um, antenatal and perinatal and neonatal classes um, as well as bringing together parents um, and uh, and offering up a whole range of sort of services, our aim is to is to get a doctor surgery sort of like on site as well, so that uh, so that it can really be a community hub, which also happens to have an excellent school there, um, and that's part of it. So we do also think that, that you need to you need to have so we invest in instructional coaching. Like you need to you need to be developing your staff and having great teachers in front of kids. There needs to be a really sort of rigorous rich well sequenced well sequenced curriculum you need to have a great culture that sort of develops and, and builds great relationships um and, and and we think that that schools can can we can certainly do a lot more in all of those respects and, and and are really trying to to do so um so that is still part of it we're not saying you know do an antenatal hub and then everything will be okay um it, it's really sort of doing all of these things together uh so that's my job now working with um working with uh, other trusts that are trying to sort of pursue those models so that hopefully we build a network um of cradle to career um, models uh, across the country um and that that partnership and, and, and network just becomes bigger and bigger and communities get get much more from from their schools um and uh and different organizations there so much so much to unpack there John thank you so much and um, I love that and um, what you said about a great school is necessary but not sufficient and I love the the notes you made there on um community and, and highlighting that so oftentimes the goal is to get children out of a community whereas we want to keep the talent in the community to make the community better so there's a lot in there but also most the the um masters and expert teaching work with the ambition institute your work in primary school i just find that so fascinating i can imagine my um 
my primary school teacher popping up in the high school to teach me <laughs> teach me higher music or, or so that would be so fascinating and I imagine if there's only you mentioned that there's only 60 kids there in your intake so I'd imagine by the time you've you've went through school you've built up such strong relationships with the students and you couple that with really excellent teaching then it really will produce the the goal the great results that you mentioned so you mentioned a couple of things there that I want to unpick today um, because what I would like to do is explore what you call your five best bets to improve teaching and learning. Firstly, however, I, I would like to ask you how you came to them because you noted in one of your blogs that a widely often quoted, um, or wide, widely quoted Dylan William quote, I've tied myself with notes there, um, <laughs> is that he says that everything works somewhere but nothing works everywhere. So how did you come to those five best bets? Yeah, so it's a really good question. Another Dylan William quote is that the goal of a leader is to stop teachers do is to stop teachers doing good things so that they can focus on even better things. Um, I actually prefer that one. Um, his like his everything works somewhere. I'm not I'm not hundred percent sold on that anymore. I don't know whether that's true. I think that there are some stuff which probably <laughs> doesn't work anywhere. Um, but uh, but anyway, that to, that to one side. Look, I think. This is my big thing at the moment, Darren. I think that we're not honest about trade-offs anywhere near as much as we should be in school. Teachers, senior leaders, 98% of the job is making trade-offs, sort of assessing and making trade-offs. Because generally speaking, this is what Dylan Brim was talking about, is stopping people from doing good things. Pretty much everything that teachers do is is good. Pretty much everything they do has a positive impact on on kids. And in fact, when you went... When educational, one of the problems with educational research is almost all interventions that are evaluated uh, have some sort of a positive effect, which is why all of these programs can market, you know, we make four months progress, or whatever. Pretty much anything that you do will have a positive effect. I mean, kids will just make progress anyway, just by getting older and moving <laughs> sort of through school. Um, and so it's, it, it, it's not enough just for it to be a good thing. Uh, instead, we want to be, um, we, we want to be being explicit with if we do this, there will be a, there will be some cost to it. There'll be some time to it. There'll be some resources, whatever it is, um, and it will bring us these benefits. And so, in terms of this language of bets, we want to be placing, we we want to be betting, making bets by spending our time on things that are more likely to yield greater outcomes uh, through the least amount of resource possible. Um, it's quite often to talk about efficacy, so um, whether things work and, and to what extent they work. And that is an important me- measure. But another one is efficiency. And very often, especially educational research, is not evaluated in terms of efficiency. So um, what we don't do is talk about well, how much time did it take to achieve X or how many teachers were required to, to achieve X. And ideally, we want something which is both efficient and effective. Now, there are um, that there, there is emerging evidence and research around some of the more like some of the bets that are more likely to be to be better. So there's there's stuff from, for example, the EEF and and um, uh, the um, and uh, the Great Teaching Toolkit from from Professor Rob Coe. Um, uh, the the Chartered College of Teaching is doing some amazing work for their Impact Journal in terms of sort of building. Um, a sense of what what is not only um, effective but also likely to be 
efficient. But ultimately, I'm not going to sit here and say these five are guaranteed the top five things to, to focus upon. Maybe in three years' time, I'll come back and say, actually, we, we spend way less time sort of focusing and thinking about that now because actually we think that focusing on this thing is, is a much better bet. And so that constant sort of evaluation and, 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 and reflection is building that and is really important. But I first wrote this, um, I first wrote this uh, post of the five best bets, I think in 2018 um, for, for a research nas- nas- national. And what's quite interesting is, we're, as we'll get onto, is um, some of it felt sort of quite new and quite edgy um, when, when I sort of wrote it back then, some of the things that we've been focused upon. And I think they're starting now to be um, more nationally sort of recognized and, and rolled out. But that bumps into problems because there's there's kind of the the, the gap between the theory and the, and the and the sort of application is usually pretty wide, and, and so um, hopefully we'll be able to get into some of the nitty gritty of that. Certainly, certainly, I love what you what you note there. I mean, I can imagine that when you first wrote that post, it was like um, really exciting stuff. But now that a lot of it is said a lot, but it's about um, making the making that common practice going from good to great. And really understanding the theory behind it will help you make it great. So we're going to go through the five bits and I'm going to ask a few questions and follow-up questions there. And the first one we're going to start with is low-stakes quizzing, which is often referred to as retrieval practice. So can I ask you, what is the evidence for low-stakes quizzing and how can teachers apply this regularly in their classrooms? So... um... Low stakes quizzing is is really based upon a phenomenon in psychology known as the as the testing effect. Um, one of the things, so the testing effect is one of the most robust findings in psychological research, and, and it's basically just the idea of the more regularly you're you're quizzed or you're tested, either formally or informally on something, the more likely you are to be able to retrieve it in in the future. So this sort of stuff happens informally all the time in terms of I don't know when you're. Uh, I've got an 18 month old at the moment. Um, the she she knows where her snacks are. <laughs> she she know how does she know where her snacks are? Well, she's kind of been tested on that lots and lots of times in terms of her informally having to having to sort of see where the snacks come from. Um, and and this is true of sort of always all sort of declarative and procedural knowledge that, that the more regularly you're tested on it, the, the more likely you are uh, to, to achieve it in the future. It's, it's based on um, uh, a theory from Robert Elizabeth Bjork called the new theory of disuse that, uh, that um, memories or schemas and long-term memory carry both a retrieval strength and, and a storage strength, so a retrieval strength in terms of how quickly you can bring it back to mind and a storage strength in terms of how well, how well organized that that schema is so uh, the sort of cues that are attached to it and so how well consolidated it is uh, how easily it is relearned even if it is forgotten and that that retrieval requires forgetting it requires a kind of degradation in terms of retrieval um to to boost the retrieval strength um so how do teachers sort of capitalize on 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 this well what the, one of the joys of this is is, is that it does seem like the findings seem to say that it doesn't really matter how you do it, it just matters that you do it. Um, so it could be, for example, a couple of multiple choice questions at the start of a lesson. It could be um, pupils uh, dumping down everything that they can remember um, about a previous sort of material. Um, it could be uh, 
pupils giving themselves uh, quiz questions um, and, and ask themselves about, about different things. It could be gap fill exercises, could be short answer responses. Um, probably best, in fact, if you mix it up uh, and, and have a sort of varied diet for pupils. There are a few pitfalls, though, I think. So, so one is that it, it does need to be effortful retrieval. And, and where I sometimes see this going wrong, and where I've done this wrong in the past is where you basically give kids their kind of like, if you're using a knowledge organizer, for example, you give them their knowledge organizer um, and then you, you give them some time to sort of do some retrieval practice and they're not retrieving. They're not, as in, they're not trying, they're not searching through their sort of mental vaults and trying to, trying to find this piece. What they're doing is they're just sort of like looking at the, looking at the knowledge organizer, reading it. And the, and the fact that there's no real effortful processing there means that it's very unlikely to be actually increasing the, the retrieval strength. So it does need to be effortful. And the second thing is that you, and linked to this, you, you probably want to be trying to increase the spacing between the sort of re retrieval um so this is sometimes called the spacing effect um because the, as, I, as i mentioned before the more regularly you retrieve something the, the more you increase the retrieval strength but you do need to build in forgetting it's kind of counterintuitive but the uh, forgetting is a it's not just an inevitable part of learning it's a necessary part of learning and so you you want to try to um building greater amounts of spacing now look teachers are, are really busy and you, the amount of forgetting the amount of spacing that will be necessary for different kids will be different because it will rely on a bunch of that all of their prior knowledge and how easy to do it so it's impossible to to put you know it's this time it's three weeks and four days uh, that's the space so but you you can probably make you can probably make sort of general sort of bets general sort of like quite quick heuristic judgments and sometimes you see these like last lesson last week last term it's quite a nice one in terms of you're building in a bit of sort of like regular regular spacing um so low stakes quizzing i think is um it, it's something that's really actually quite quick and easy to do you know the the first part of your lesson sorted the first first five minutes of your lesson uh, is sorted kids tend to find it really motivating as long as you've sort of pitched it correctly generally when we're pitching it then getting about probably about 78 percent of things um correct um uh, so it's a nice quick easy way to start the lesson it's also usually a pretty calm way to start the lesson it's quite nice of Okay, we're going to begin the lesson. Quick recap quiz. It's uh, it's on the desk in front of you. Have a crack at that, and uh, I'll pop the answers up in four minutes. The classroom's really calm and quiet. Everybody's thinking really hard. They're getting stuff right, so they're like, "I love history," or "I'm really good at English." Um, and then you say, "Okay, let's have a look at these together." And people are invested because they've got them in front of them, so they're immediately all bought in. Now, and then you ride that wave into the rest of the lesson. Um, uh, I mean, I, I don't know about you. When I did my PGCE, I, I, I distinctly remember being being told this phrase: um, "You you don't you don't fatten a pig by weighing it." Mm -hmm. And the the real like the, the the push was like we shouldn't be testing kids. Um, it's mean. It's sort of like uh, humiliating. It's it's old fashioned. It's Gregorian. Um, and they don't get any better just by doing lots and lots of tests. Uh, you should be using that time to teach them. Um, 
I think that there's like a grain of truth in that. And that if you're just giving kids like practice GCSE papers every lesson, then sure, that's crap teaching. That's that's sort of like that that's not likely to lead. But but it's absolutely untrue. Like the opposite is true in terms of like the kid that you don't you don't fatten a pig by weighing it. Like you in terms of retrieval practice, you absolutely do fatten the pig by weighing it regularly. Yeah, I love that image you gave of the start of a lesson and we all want that <laughs> calm, wonderful start. But you're right in what you say um, about it. You can see the success if you, if you pitch it right and they're getting, as you say, 70%. You can see the success. And if we learn anything from motivated teaching that Pets McRae wrote, it's that the that feeling of success helps increase motivation. So you begin to love history a little bit more. You begin to get really excited about going to English and so on. So that builds that motivation. So really important notes. And I love what you said there about forgetting being necessary um, for learning and, and bringing that in. So thank you much for that. And it brings us on to our second bit. And you briefly mentioned this in your introduction and it's been very much in vogue in the last wee while. Um, so I'd love your thoughts on it because I, I, I note that you guys have been doing it for quite a while. And your second bet is on instructional coaching. So can you start by detailing what it is you mean by instructional coaching and then go on to give us advice or, or give us what advice you would give for teachers, leaders and, and schools who would like to begin adopting that approach? Yeah, so instructional coaching is an approach to professional development which is individualized, incremental, focused, low stakes and sustained. Um, so let's just think about each of those. What it means is, let, well, let's start with traditional professional development. Traditional professional development is you get all of your teachers in the hall and you say, I'm going to tell you about retrieval practice because it's something we're going to do as a school now. This is why it's really important. Here's some stuff about the new theory of disuse. Here are some applications you can possibly do. So do some retrieval practice. Now, I'm not saying that traditional professional development has no place in schools or or, mm-hmm. or that it's bad. Like it, it does have a place and I think it can be helpful. That sort of example is, is probably an example where it is quite useful if there's just a new if there's a new policy or approach that you think is a is a useful bet for the whole school and maybe you do get everybody in the hall. But it has massive limitations. Um, so one of the limitations is that uh, your teachers are all going to be in different places. They're going to have different levels of experience. They're going to be struggling with different things. They're going to have strengths in different areas. They're going to teach different subjects. Uh, and I'm sure that you, uh, I'm sure that you've been in a position before where you're sat in a CPD and you're watching it and you think, "This is the sixth time I've, I've received this CPD." <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was speaking to a teacher recently, <laughs> this is a true story, and she'd worked at this school for almost uh, 20 years, I think, and they their CPD offer was they had five like CPDs that you could do, like one on differentiation, one on questioning, one, and it was on like this little like laminated card, and at the start of the year, you just sort of like ticked which ones you were going to attend on which, uh, on, on which half term. And they just did that on a rolling basis every 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 year. Um, so, so look that the the way that instructional coaching differs from that is that it's it's individualized. So you don't go to a whole group. So every single teacher has a coach who works with them individually, and and, and what they do is they drop in and observe a bit of the lesson, only a, only a little chunk, usually only ten or twenty minutes. What they're not trying to do is is make a big holistic judgment like you used to get with lesson observations. Instead, they're just trying to see a bit of teaching. They're trying to 
maybe have a chat with some of the children in terms of what they're learning, see that what the kids are, are writing um, and just gain a bit of sort of like qualitative data around what's going on in this classroom. After that, and, and hopefully soon after that, maybe even the same day, they'll sit down with that teacher and they'll have a coaching conversation. The best way to, I think, um, understand this is it's similar to sport coaching in terms of a sport coach, a sports coach sits down with the athlete and they say, right, let's get clear on what you're trying to achieve here. So generally what you're trying to achieve is, you know, you're trying to get faster at, at, at running the 100 meters, whatever it is. And then you break that down into, okay, well, there's, there's first of all, there's the kicking off the blocks, right? So there's this first part. Now, maybe maybe that's actually okay. We're not going to focus on that. You know, it could get better, but, it, but it's not, we're not going to get loads of gains off, off that. Maybe actually it's um, your, uh, the, the, your, your pacing in the middle of the, in the middle of the race, your pacing, or your stride isn't wide enough, or you're not flicking your toe up, whatever it is. And, and so the, together, the, 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 the coach and the coachee, will identify the goal, what we try to achieve here, and then try and identify one small area of practice where if it was improved, it would help them to achieve that goal. Now, coaching tries to get the, 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 most, the smallest, most granular change in practice than you can because we don't want it to be overwhelming. It usually helps a reach. It happens every week to every Every teacher has a coach and every teacher is coached every week. That means that it doesn't matter if the coaching step is as small as, um, so a coaching action step that I've had before, for example, is just to number your instructions before the independent task and, and put the numbers on your hand. So instead of what I was doing, so I was saying to the kids, okay, so I've just shown you how we add an adverbial clause in the middle of a sentence using those commas to demarcate them. When you get to your places, you need to open up your book to a new page and put the date and the learning objective. Some of you will have some marking from last lesson, so please can you make sure you do those corrections. And then we're going to be using the worksheet, which will be on your desk, to have a look at those adverbial clauses. But what I want you to do is, if you can, think about unique adverbial clauses and say, well, like, how the kid, you lost the kids. There's just way too much information here. So what you need to do is you need to think of what are the three things that you want kids to do and you need to number them. And that's how you're going to give instructions from now on before kids go to the independent task. It's a really small change in practice, but it makes a huge difference mm -hmm. in terms of um, uh, in terms of me trying to achieve my goal, which is the kids all being able to add adverbial clauses to their <laughs> sentences. And so we sometimes call that high a high leverage action step. It's high leverage in, in terms of, uh, as a lever, it's going to improve lots and lots of the, um, the, the pupils' uh, attainment progress. So um, coaches will work every week with their teachers. Um, it's not attached to performance management. Um, you don't like complete it. So our head teacher is coached every week. Um, the, the, uh, the, the assumption is that every teacher can get better. Every teacher can improve. And we, we frame it, we frame it as, as a, as an entitlement. It's, it's, it's like a, it's a professional benefit, uh, that if you, if you come to reach, like we'll make you a better teacher. We like that. That's one of the things that we promised you. We will make you a better teacher. Um, and, uh, you'll, you'll develop quicker with us, we think than, than anywhere else. Now that's going to have a huge benefit on the kids because the thing that makes the biggest difference to kids attainment is the teacher in front of them. Uh, the teacher effect is much bigger than the, than the school effect. Uh, and, and so, um, so it's kind of a win-win situation. We also think it has great, 
there's great implications for culture because it means that you don't get kind of like you don't get egos in terms of who's the best teacher and instead everybody's just on a journey and everybody wants to get better and everybody's willing to get better and everybody's trying to get better and and that sort of then permeates the whole school it creates a really open door um sort of like environment where people can wander into each other's classes people feel really really safe asking people for help asking colleagues for help asking senior leaders for help because the assumption is we're starting with this this teacher wants to get better so they can help their teachers more great like that, that what a wonderful and professional responsible thing um uh so yeah it has a great backwash effect on the on the culture of the school as well we think Like you, UpLearn is on a mission to help every student realise and fulfil their potential. UpLearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that helps teachers improve educational outcomes among students, whilst reducing their own workloads. Developed by an experienced team of educators, UpLearn courses contain high-quality videos, quizzes and exam preparation material. Teachers direct students to certain sections of UpLearn as homework, facilitating flip learning, consolidation of classroom material and independent learning. UpLearn leverages cognitive science and evidence-informed teaching techniques, meaning that teachers can rest assured that students are effectively engaged and supported, both inside and outside of school. Over 150 schools have seen improvements with UpLearn's cutting-edge technology, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and trusts such as art schools and the Harris Federation. 97% of students who complete an UpLearn course achieve A star or A, with many starting from D's and U's. What could yours achieve? Find out by booking a demo today at uplearn.co.uk and be sure to quote Becoming Educated for a 10% discount. That's uplearn.co.uk, U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk. UK. Certainly, I love that that entitlement of "come to our school, we will make you you a better teacher." And it's important that you note there that the teacher effect is, of course, much bigger. Than the school effect, and also that what you said there about no egos, because if the head teacher is being poached, then everyone everyone can improve. Um, so, what advice, John, would you give for for teachers or schools that would be interested in that? Because it must be a huge time commitment to put for your all your teachers and all your staff. It is, and um, I'm glad that you said that because I think sometimes when people do stuff, they pretend that there's you know going back to our conversation about trade offs. They, t- they pretend that it's easy or they pretend that, you know, why isn't everybody doing this? They should. The truth is, like, this takes up quite a lot of our senior leaders' timetables. And it's also an ask on teachers as well. Um, we just think that it's so important that it's one of the last things that we would remove. We would much rather have our teachers talking to their coach about how to be a better teacher than almost anything else. <laughs> certainly than marking books or making presentations or doing random sort of like admin 
or sitting in meet like general sort of like meetings um and so uh so one of the ways i think to make this fair is to not give it the time that it deserves actually i think that where instructional coaching often falls flat is because people think that they can do it for free and it's not you don't get it for free like you do need to timetable it in so so we we have it in teachers diaries so uh, all of our teachers have a, a google calendar where they have sort of their different um their different aspects of their day the lessons that they're teaching etc but we also one of the first things that we do at the start of the year is we assign coaches and uh, if I'm a coach, I'll meet all of my coaches um, and say, I'm going to be your coach this year. It's very exciting. Um, can you tell me a time that would, would best work for you? That could be, you know, it, for, for some teachers, they prefer to do it at 7.30 before the day begins. Other teachers would will, they'll say, oh, Thursday is my free day. So I'll do that. At, uh, so could we do like 3.30 as soon as I dismiss the kids, 3.30 till 4.00? Um, we keep the meetings to about 30 minutes. We used to have longer coaching meetings and we found that, um first of all the, the those meetings then got quite flabby like like you're, you're you're more likely to have really a bit of woolly chat whereas if it's half an hour and um and so one aspect of coaching i didn't talk about is practice so we get we get teachers to to practice the action steps so with me if it was counting out I, I get up and i rehearse it and i actually practice it and we we spend about usually about half of the session is, is dedicated to practice um uh, so actually we probably got about 15 minutes to sort of like talk about what went on the lesson get clear on the action step maybe do a bit of scripting in terms of of, of thinking about exactly what and how you're going to do it it keeps the meeting really really snappy um by by having it sort of a, a, a half an hour and really focused um so so yeah it, it does there is there is a cost to it um but as i said like we think that that is worth it and so we we prioritize that and we carve out that time and my, my instinct is that that other schools could could carve out that time too um uh, so in, instructional coaching is, is is obviously part of the early career framework where it's used as a mechanism for lots of the early career characters but i think there's been a, a mixed response to it um uh from 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 many schools one of which is that you know this is too time consuming and i i want to be careful here because my, my, if, you, if you thought that the, the early career framework is a step up in terms of expectations of, of what uh, new teachers into the profession are expected to know and do, um, and instructional coaching is the mechanism to try and both develop that knowledge but also put it into practice. If your expectation was that you were going to be able to essentially sort of do more with the same amount of time allocation, which in some schools may well have been zero or close to zero, then you're going to find that really challenging. And there is, so funding is given to schools for mentors to be our timetable, for example, each week to work with their ECTs. And there are some schools that are saying, we're not really, we can't release our mentors because we don't have time or budget to do that. So where where can we find the time to do these to do these meetings with the ECTs? And I think the answer there is you're receiving funding to have mentors taken off timetable. You've made a decision as a leader to to not have them off timetable. And so you're right, it's not going to fit mm -hmm. if you don't allocate the time to it. You need to allocate the time to it. Now, like I said, maybe it is maybe it is unreasonable in, in terms of the expectations and and even with that time sort of uh, being given off then it still doesn't fit in um 
but this expectation that you just get things for free we need to stop like things done well do take time and so it gets back to the idea of trade-offs of you need to be really clear of what are you going to do um so that you can also be clear about what you don't do so you can say we're not going to do this why aren't you doing that it's really important we know it's really important but there's just stuff that's even more important and so we spend our time doing that no, it certainly goes back to what you said right at the start of for Dylan Williams saying uh, stop teachers doing things that are good in order for them to do things that are great. And I suppose that being one of your bets, of course, the, the time investment shows that you're wanting teachers to be better. But I just love that commitment of we will make you better. And it's like anything, if you put the time into it, then you will see the, the fruits of your labour. And that is excellent teachers in front of children. Because I often quote Dylan Williams as well, because he says in one of his books that the, like the children will learn in six months in the best teacher's classroom, which takes them two years to learn and dare I say the worst teacher's classroom. And that difference to the children, especially the children from most disadvantaged backgrounds, is massive. So that investment in your teachers is really kind of keeping the main thing the main thing. So thank you for the notes there and on that. So we're going to move on um, to your third bit. And your third bit is that of sequence curriculum sequencing curriculum and curriculum is another one of those hot topics but you wrote in that blog in 2018 that you've been working on developing your curriculum over the last three or four years and but you still have a long way to go your main insight after thinking about curriculum over this time is that it mostly comes down to sequencing so what do you mean by sequencing and how can teachers begin to think about such a complex topic yeah so i'm going to do that annoying thing of like we were thinking about curriculum before it was cool <laughs> like this before Ofsted started talking about it we were, we were thinking about curriculum and, and before us so obviously everybody's now thinking about curriculum because Ofsted pulled the big the big red lever um and you'll get the crap kicked out of you if you haven't um so we started but where we started was um Basically, writing knowledge organized. What we, our, our, our thing, we realized that our curriculum was was not defined in anywhere near as much detail as was necessary um, to to give kids uh, a great education. And so the the remedy for that was knowledge organizers and, and writing booklets and specifying in greater detail the, what we expect to learn in, in lessons. I think that that's really important. The identification of the substantive knowledge, but I don't think it's the most important thing. Um, I think sequencing is the most important thing. And, and I say that because um, we did the sort of like get kids to know loads and loads of stuff. But it's, I put one of my knowledge organizers online years ago and Oliver Cavalieri, who, who you might know, who's the sort of uh, uh, partners with, with Tom Sherrington to write the walkthroughs and the, the, the um, uh, amazing uh, graphic illustrator for every educational book out there, it seems, uh, and also an ex-special uh, school head. He took a look at one of my knowledge organisers and he actually DM'd me, which is very kind, uh, because he said, John, I love the knowledge organiser. Um, I just got two uh, issues with it. Um, the first is that it's not knowledge and the second is that it isn't organised. <laughs> I love that. I thought that was great. He was like, you've got an information list there and it's a really nice information list. But it's not a knowledge organiser. Um, and uh, I think that he was right. Now, now I think that actually, as a tool, a knowledge organiser in its usual form of sort of two columns of this is actually more helpful like that. Um, but uh, for, we, we won't get into why. Um, but the 
it's a really good challenge in terms of what we really want from pupils is them to develop sophisticated schemas in the substantive concepts within subject disciplines. So if you're a history teacher, then yes, you want kids to know a lot about history because knowing a lot about history is what experts do, is what they have. But you want that organised in qualitatively uh, unique ways. Um, so, for example, you want it organised um, around some of the second order concepts, things like continuity continuity and change, things like cause and effect, um, things like uh, assigning sort of like reliability or certainty to particular to particular uh, sources. And uh, that, that, those second order concepts start to give you a framework for the way that you sequence content. So it allows you to start to think, if I want to teach this now, what will children already need to know? If I want to teach children about, for example, um, the way that Henry interacted with his court or the way that Henry was influenced by the Tudor court, um, what do my kids already need to know conceptually and substantively? And then you'll start to think, OK, so they need to know something about um, the, the kind of like the, the role and the expectations of, um, of uh, Tudor monarchs or monarchs from sort of mid, the Middle Ages and a, a bit after the Middle Ages. Um, they'll need to know something about the relationship between church and state in fact they probably need to know quite a lot about the relationship between church and state and the uh, and the role of sort of power and authority um and 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 then you can start to say well it doesn't matter necessarily whether i teach my children about henry the second and and thomas beckett or whether i teach them about um King John and, and, and the barons. What's important is they're getting a sense of how the monarch's power can be challenged. That's what I need them to know to be able to engage in this really quite knotty, difficult sort of like idea of the, of the relationship. Now, that's just one example from, from history. We could give dozens just within history and we could do them in all subjects. And, and I, I would quickly run out of steam if I started to move into different subject areas because I don't know what that looks like in in art or in in dt for example but i bet you a dt teacher would and i think that a dt what i would want in my school is my dt teacher spending almost all of their time thinking about that sequencing thinking about where the kids are going and what they need to do to get there backwards planning from that thinking about the sequence the conception understanding and so i think that we need to spend less time thinking about the the precise sort of knowledge items that go into different units, although that is important, and more about the, the overarching sequence that, that uh, in terms of the, the way that those concepts build as people move through. That's what I think I mean by that. I don't know if, I, I don't know if that's what I put when I wrote the blog, because I haven't read it for a couple of years, but that's what I now think anyway. No, certainly it makes, it makes a lot of sense, that idea of that um, themes and concepts, what you need to know. I suppose it's easier in the more hierarchical subjects. So if you take mathematics, you know, you can't... Um, Mathematics might shoot me now, but you can't un- access Pythagoras' theorem if you don't understand shapes and multiplication, division, and and so on. So they're the building blocks to help them access that. So that'll be why you study that later on in your mathematical career. And it'll be the same, a lot of things similar in, in different subjects as well, I can imagine. But a great example that you, that you gave there. 
So how would you how would you give advice to teachers that wanted to start thinking about sequencing? Is it as simple as looking at your subject and breaking down what children need to know, but what they need to know to be able to know that? So I think that um, we we undertook a process which is sometimes called backwards planning. So we began, you know, we do have children from 2 up to 18. We began by thinking if a kid in our school was going to study a subject at university, we did this for all the subjects. Um, so if they're going to study PE or sports science at university, if they're going to study German at university or um, uh, uh, we don't actually offer German, uh, Spanish at university or, or English literature, what do they need at 18 to do that? So, like, well, one thing is they need an A star in that subject, um, which means that they need a grade nine at GCSE. Okay, so what do you need to get an A star in this subject? Um, and there'll be a bunch of knowledge, skills, experiences, and attitudes. And we try to we try to basically write those down. Write down the sort of like, well, we we that a, a child at eighteen. Um, finishing their A-levels would need to, for example, have a solid understanding of um, literary theory and some of the sort of like lenses of literary theories that need to understand sort of Marxist and feminist, uh, uh, what it means is to have a Marxist or feminist sort of like perspective on, on, on literature. Um, they will need some examples of that, probably some of the most common examples and some of the most, the most famous sort of seminal examples. We, we try to do that. So but if for them to have that at 18, what do they need at age 17 or 16 then what do they need at age 40 and you basically can just start to plan it backwards um and it helps you to see what's really important what is important if, for example year four or year two um because you can still do this in terms of if we think that um for example for so kids are going to do uh, some gothic literature when they go into G- do their gcses they're going to they're going to read frankenstein or or, or um Jacqueline Hyde. Um, Okay, so we don't want that to be the first time for them to encounter Gothic literature, do we? So we want them to have a couple of other examples in their conceptual bucket of of Gothic literature. So how can we do that? Well, we teach Skellig in in Year 5 by David Almond, which is uh, a primary school book, but it's it's a Gothic tale. It's about a kind of, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, it's about a boy who goes to the garage at the bottom of his garden and he uh, he finds a kind of crumpled heap of of bones and and suit uh, that happens to be a man or he's not sure if it is a man maybe it's an angel or maybe it's a kind of maybe it's a kind of bird man and it's unclear what it is and he befriends what's called skelly he befriends him and and will bring him sort of food down into the bottom of the garden and tries to nurse him back into into health now it's a gothic tale because there's kind of this sort of well why is it a gothic tale and this is the these are the conversations we can start to have with the children it's a gothic tale because it includes a kind of supernatural a kind of supernatural creature there's a kind of moral ambiguity to it it's not that clear whether he's good or evil right or wrong there's a kind of um, a lot of it takes place in in night at night time and in in a dilapidated building in a, in a built the garage is sort of like crumbling and, and and falling down now these are the sort of hallmarks of, uh, of of gothic literature they'll come across the same sort of thing when they read for example um dr jacqueline mr hyde or um or, or frankenstein now, if they've already encountered it in year five, then they're going to access that much easier when they go into year 10. So, so beginning sort of backwards planning 
uh, 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 would be like the first step. And the second is getting really clear on what the second order concepts are within your subject discipline or the substantive concepts are within your subject discipline. All of the subject associations publish these on their website. Um, some of them are, I'll, I'll admit, some of them are a bit woolier than others. Uh, some of those subject associations, I, I think that they've got a bit of deeper thinking to do themselves. So history is like, the, by convention, it's pretty well, it's pretty well developed. Um, th there are others where you might be right, like stuff like maths, it's kind of just really uncontroversial, like the hierarchical structure of the sequencing of maths is just really uncontroversial. So maybe less time is, is actually needed sort of like thinking and investing in this. Um, and you're better off spending time thinking about the specific examples that you're using and the way that you sequence examples and, 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 and so on. So yeah, that, that, that would be my advice. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. And, and I agree. Um, I love what you mentioned there about what you did in year five prepares them and gives grounding for what you read later on at GCSE and A-Level. I, I love that kind of cycle of, of education is that how that kind of builds on that and prepares you. So it's not the first time you experience it. So thank you for that example. So moving on to, to your fourth bit and your fourth bit is improving ratio. Could you explain for us what ratio is and then offer us some suggestions of how listeners can build ratio in their classrooms? Yeah, so ratio comes from Doug Lamov's TLAC, uh, Teach Like a Champion. And there's like, we love TLAC and we think there's loads that's great in TLAC, especially around sort of routines and culture. Um, but, uh, it, you know, not everybody loves it and, and some people find it too too prescriptive, especially around some of the behaviour stuff, which which is fine. But one of the elements that, that I think is most useful, or the element I think is most useful in the whole book is the idea of ratio. So the idea of ratio is the ratio of pupils who are thinking against those that aren't thinking and the ratio of pupils who are thinking about stuff that's hard and <laughs> isn't hard. So Ed and I um, visited a class. We were lucky enough to visit a classroom in another school recently, and we went in, and it was really good. We went into this classroom; it was ace. What was, what was going on? And we came out, and we we said, "Like that was ace, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really good." And and then Ed said to me, "Why was it ace? Why was it so good?" And it's a really good question because you know what it's like. You go into a classroom, and within a minute or two, you know, we shouldn't make snap judgments, and and, and learning takes place over time. But you can also just tell when you go in a classroom, you're like this is ace. What's going on in here? Like kids are learning loads. Um, it's a really nice place to be. Uh, I want to be in this classroom. And so we try to sort of get to the bottom of this in, in layman's terms, and like away from all of the sort of like problems. And we. We like we said, great teaching, great classroom. Like all of the children, this is what we came up with. All of the children are thinking really hard. What they're thinking about is tough, and they're loving it. Like if those are those that if, if those three things are happening, then I think you've got it cracked. All of the children are thinking hard. What they're thinking about is really tough, and they're all loving it. Um, like that feels like then you've, you've got it sorted so ratio is sort of trying to get to this um uh so there's 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 two parts to it which, which is the, the first part is participation ratio which is the number of pupils that are participating really common to see in classrooms teachers asking a question waiting for hands to go up and then choosing one one kid um there may well be some times where that's appropriate but generally speaking it means you've got a ratio of sort of like one to 29 one kid doing some thinking and work and 29 not um so uh, a, a really quick way to, to to increase your ratio 
would be to ask the same question but instead of waiting for hands up saying um you, you might say for example um uh who can tell me how many notes there are in an octave or uh, maybe it's something more open-ended in terms of um, what genre of music do you think it is that i've just played you uh could everybody you've got your work, mini whiteboards in front of you can everybody jot just one sentence answer please and then you wait for more till you give them 30 seconds and then after that 30 seconds you say kaylee what do you put the ratio has gone to 30 every single kid now has to think about that then there's also thinking ratios, the other aspect of this, which is how hard it is that you're that, that you're asking them to think about. Now, so so uh, a low thinking ratio would be, for example, asking kids to um, do a word search. So um, they're not having to think hard when they're doing that. Um, it's not really improving their understanding in whatever it is they're trying to do, unless it's literally get better at word searches, um, which I would argue is probably not a, a, a goal that school should pursue. Um, we do it because, why do we do it? Well, we do it because we want high participation ratio. We know that if we give them word searches, they'll all do it. But the reason they're all doing it is because the thinking ratio is so low as to make it just a waste of time. Um, you are actually probably better off having the ratio of one because at least one kid is thinking hard. <laughs> um, so uh, this is the rub. This is the difficulty that as you increase the participation ratio, the the um, there's a pull to decrease the thinking ratio. Where in fact, what you want is the sweet spot of the, having all the kids thinking, but also having all the kids thinking hard. So there are a few strategies which do, I think, lend themselves to this, and one of them is front the writing. Um, another D, uh, a Doug Lamov TLAC um, technique. And it's just getting into the habit of getting all of the kids to write their answers before you question them. It does take more time. So you will have to ask fewer questions. But my instinct is that it, those questions will, you will get so much more learning from the pupils because they're all having to think that it's worth spending that bit of extra time on in terms of the lesson. It's worth doing less better um, because you won't have to reteach things in a month's time because only two of the kids were actually paying attention when you asked the question the first time around. Um, so it's it's really tough um, that getting this right. Uh, so so um, I, I wrote a blog about this and how sort of I, you know, I, I'd been thinking about it for about a year. It'd be, my, it'd, be, sort of, it'd be my focus for about a year and I felt a bit better at it. And there were a few times where I thought I got it right, but very often not and it's it's sort of mm. different in different subjects and different different so it requires a lot of thought but having that in your in mind in terms of almost like imagining a graph at the back of your classroom of uh, participation ratio and thinking ratio how many kids are involved in this part and how how hard is it that i'm asking to think i think is a pretty good proxy in terms of you getting great teaching and learning happening in your classrooms no, I love your, your three principles of that, what you saw in that lesson, all children thinking hard. What they're thinking about is really, really hard, but I love that last one. They're all loving it. And it <laughs> goes, goes back to what we said right back at, when we mentioned low stakes quizzing about that, when you mentioned they start to a class when they've got a, a little do now task and they're all doing it, a little retrieval quiz. They're all thinking and they're thinking hard and they're feeling that success. So I love that marrying up there and, and thank you for that. And I love that idea of front the writing. Um, I've been, I've, I've, I just encouraged them. Um, one of our um, NQTs, same as early career teachers, we call them NQTs, um, 
to to do that and I went and watched her lesson and you just saw the children um, provide just much more meaningful answers as well. I found that because they were having to commit to writing it down, they were thinking through their answer a little bit more and it meant for a, a richer discussion. So thank you for that that one and, and that idea of ratio. It's such a simple idea that once you, you hear about it and it spoke, you kind of mentioned to you, get into that top right corner of that graph, you're like, such a simple idea, but oftentimes we we do you do watch lessons and you've after, I'm guilty of it myself. I'll ask a question and John's hand will go up and I'll go to John straight away, and it's almost I've almost stolen a stolen a good learning opportunity from for the other twenty nine children. Like I've I've stolen stolen that from them by doing that, so making them all do it. So thank you for that, and that brings us smoothly on to your final bit which is that of learning about cognitive load, cognitive load theory. So why do you think learning about cognitive load theory will help improve teaching and learning? So I, cognitive load theory is really, so it's John, John Swell is responsible for, for, for cognitive load theory. We're, we're building on a whole tradition of educational psychology and cognitive psychology, including people like uh, Alan, Alan Baddeley, who got the working memory model of mind, and, and the behaviourist before him, and even, you know, the Bruner and the Piaget, who everybody probably learned about in their, in their PGCE. The cognitive load theory is the theory of how pupils, or how people process, store, and retrieve information. How people process, store, and retrieve information. That's about as close to a job description of a teacher as you can get, right? Getting kids to process, store, and retrieve information is about as close to a job description of a teacher you can get. There's a science that sets out how this works. Almost nobody knows anything about it. <laughs> What's going on? Not, oh, again, it's one of these things where happily in the last three or four years since it's it's become much more commonly known no maybe not understood teacher tap did a nice quiz on this where they asked teachers if they'd heard of cognitive load theory and over 80 percent said they had and then they asked them to identify the three features within cognitive load theory and fewer than a fifth were able to so, so I think the people have now heard of cognitive load theory, but I don't know whether. So there are three features in terms of intrinsic, extraneous, and germane load, even when they're offered as a multiple choice sort of like uh, offering. Um, so why do I think it's important? Because it underpins literally everything else that we did. It underpins everything that we do. Um, it gives you a standard model. It gives you explanatory and predictive power in terms of the way, the decisions that you make as a teacher, whether that's in the moment, in the lesson, in the way that you explain something, whether that's sequencing a curriculum over time and thinking about the way that you bring together lessons, whether it's designing your slides that you're going to be using during a lesson. Everything is underpinned by an understanding of how pupils learn. And we have like, it's, it's not, it's a nascent science. It's not, certainly not settled, but we have some really strong principles which have been, which are, which are, which are theoretically organized and have been empirically validated in different settings. Um, and a, a, a really good universal bet because brains are much more alike than they are similar. Processing uh, systems are much more similar than they are different. Um, and, and so, 
uh, it it's kind of it's kind of baffling. This isn't an, an attack on you. <laughs> it's kind of baffling to be asked the question of why should we focus on cognitive? Why should teachers have an understanding of this? It would be for me. It's tantamount to like interviewing a doctor and saying, "So why do you think that that, that doctors should have an understanding of human anatomy? Like what? Because because it's absolutely fundamental to your job. <laughs> That's why." Um, so the the less sort of like bullish answer is it gives staff a really useful shared language uh, so when you are having a conversation with one of your teachers or senior leaders about why you for example put this lesson here or ask this question here or given this activity to pupils or re- it allows you to start using terms like the intrinsic load of this is going to be quite high because the prior knowledge in this particular um, uh, aspect of the of the um, subject is quite low. They haven't really encountered anything like this before. Schemas are going to be poorly developed. It means that we're going to require much, much, much greater guidance during the initial aspects of instruction. And all of that just immediately makes sense to the people having that conversation. You're aware of why those things are true. You're aware of what's going on for the pupils and it gives you some of that language to use. So for all of those reasons, I think it's it's just crucial. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a bit of a stain on our profession that it's taken this, uh, this long to sort of take it seriously. Uh, and, and I very much hope, uh, and I think it's gonna be a, a major part in, in professionalizing teaching um, that we will have this specialized knowledge the hallmarks of professions is that they have specialized knowledge the sort of knowledge that the general public don't have um and and i think that cognitive load theory is going to be it for teaching right thank you such a such a passionate um answer to that one and i think i've heard, <laughs> I've heard you talk about the early career framework and how that's being used to to give our profession that shared language that right. shared knowledge that we don't have because you said right back at the start of the interview that it's, and I agree with you, John, that it's amazing that we've been teaching children for hundreds of years, but yet we still argue about the same things of, and we haven't really drilled down into what great teaching is and what it looks like and how we get the best out of students and how they learn the best. And I suppose the the work of the early career framework and so on is, is helping us on that journey to get to that. So thank you so much, John. So that brings us to the end of our interview section. We've explored so much uh, right from the introduction right to there. So thank you for that. And thanks for letting us into the insights of, of your five bets. Um, we're going to move on to my quick fire section, which is three questions that I ask every guest. But before we do that, can I please ask you, John, to uh, highlight where listeners can contact you perhaps on social media where they can read perhaps your blog and can you also highlight where they can find out a little bit more about um the reach foundation yeah sure so uh, i um tweet at um at john hutchinson uh, no at john underscore hutchinson underscore and it's just j-o-n uh, and i have a blog which is head fed P-E-D-F-E-D dot wordpress.com. Although I don't blog as much as I as I used to, unfortunately. Twitter kind of the Twitter thread kind of killed the blog, right? Um and, and I'm supposed to be I'm supposed to be writing a book at the moment. I promised that I would blog when I when I got about when I uh when I started writing the, the book. 
so you can follow me at, at John Hutchinson um, and you can, my blog's in the bio there. Um, and the, the Reach Foundation, um, it's a good question in terms of the, in terms of the, the web address. We've just got a, a recently a new website. Um, and so let me just uh, check the web address for people. Uh, yeah, so it's um, reach hyphen C to C, as in cradle to career, to the number, reach uh, uh, hyphen C to C dot org. And you'll be able to see all of our work on the Reach Foundation uh, and um, uh, our cradle to career approach. Brilliant. Thank you so much, John. So we're now moving on to my quick fire questions, three questions and uh, nice short answers, although my guests aren't very good at offering me short answers here. So we'll see how we'll see we'll see how you do, John. Are you ready for them? Yes. Uh, first question is: What are you reading currently? Uh, so um, I'm current. I'm currently the education book I'm currently reading is from 1966, and it's this one here. It's um it's called Ethics and Education by R. S. Peters. I actually first read it for my masters um, and loved it. Uh, it, it. It talks about R.S. Peters tries to resolve what is meant by education, what it means to be educated, what is meant by um, the, the term education. Um, and I love it. Uh, so I'm rereading it at, at the moment. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I might add that to my never-ending list of books i've got piles <laughs> to read here um, so my second question to you john is what is your current professional development focus right so i left the classroom in easter but happily we we take a kind of like a coaching approach basically across the organization um and so we it's, it's not as formal as our coaching within schools um and so at the moment one of my <laughs> ironically one of my focuses is uh, to uh, to to be more concise and, and, and precise and pithy with answers. <laughs> I'm doing quite a lot of sort of like communicating bits of sort of like uh, what we believe uh, and, and some of the our understanding of things like cognitive science. And I definitely do have a uh, I, I definitely do have a t- tendency to take a while to get to the point. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's my right. Thank you. That's yeah. my question. Perfect for a podcast, maybe not perfect for, for the email. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, and my final question to you, John, is what do you love the most about teaching? Um, conversations with children are much more interesting than conversations with adults. That's an absolutely fantastic answer. I'd, I'd agree with that on, on many, many occasions. Thank you so much, John. Well, on this one, it's been wonderful to chat to you for the Becoming Educated podcast. I'd like to thank you so, so much for giving up your time this evening to chat with me. My absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that chat. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. It's really kind of you. It was all my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.